All right, welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 3, Episode 17. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. <laughs> uh, Steve, we got a solo episode again together, uh, which is great. I love our solo episodes. And by the way, thanks to all the listeners uh, and viewers who are supporting the podcast. We've, we're getting some great downloads and listens. And I got some great feedback this week uh, from a very senior retailer uh, here in Canada who loves listening to us when he barbecues, actually. And just and, <laughs> and he said, you know, he, 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 we're talking barbecue, of course. And he, he said, uh, you know, listen, I love your solo episodes as much as the guest episodes. Uh, so that's a great, uh, a great feedback from our from our uh, our listeners, and and thank you uh, to our audience. And we intend to do uh, more of both uh, in season four when we get to season four. Some solo stuff and some thoughts, and we're going to be on the road and NRF, so we might do some stuff at the big show in January. So lots coming up in season four. But for now, uh, this episode is profitless prosperity, which is a great title, and uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But first. Let's get into the news of the week. So uh, results, earnings results coming out for October in the U.S. Uh, what are your thoughts on what you're seeing in retail results so far? Well, a couple things. First, the U.S. Commerce released their overall sales reports. And by the way, I think we just have to keep mentioning that the media just love to talk about month over month results for whatever Pointless. reason, Pointless. as opposed to year over year results. Uh, but the year over year results were pretty darn impressive. The consumer, can, at least in the U.S., is continuing to spend pretty robustly overall. If you dive down into some of the category data, not too surprisingly, apparel department stores you know, had the biggest increases because they're comparing against pretty easy numbers. The home category keeps rolling along. You know, e-commerce or non-store, it's not exactly e-commerce, but the non-store numbers were definitely seeing uh, some moderation, which is to be expected. So, um, but yeah, yep. really strong numbers. The thing that's really interesting to me, which I can't quite make sense of, is consumer confidence is very low. So usually you hmm. see consumer spending fairly well aligned with consumer confidence on top of, you know, just general macroeconomic factors. So sure, it's a little sure. hard to kind of line up the numbers in terms of consumer confidence, but certainly with uh, still lingering stimulus you know, stock market's mm. booming, the housing market's booming, people still yep. aren't spending as stock much on services. Yeah. Yeah. The savings rates yeah. are incredibly high. So there's a lot of kind of capacity to spend that's there. I think the willingness to spend is being driven, you know, partially by more people going out, traveling more, going back to work. So that drives certain yeah. kind of spending. And then certainly home is, uh, continues to be really robust. On the earnings front, tremendous number of earnings reports. The past week, mm -hmm. we're not going to go through all of them. Well, we're not going through all of them, period. But we're also not going to get into a tremendous amount of detail. But you know, as you might expect, since sales have been strong, generally speaking, earnings have been strong. Yeah. It's still pretty interesting that most of the retailers that reported, you see some re what I call rebalancing or moderation because of mm -hmm. what you're comparing against. So department stores look yeah. great comparing against easy numbers. Grocery, yep. some other categories, not so great because they're comparing against booming numbers. But overall, the picture is pretty strong. On the earnings front, what a lot of retailers commented on was that they were able to have improved margins because of the scarcity of supply. So mm. taking some price advances mm. because of inflation. Yeah. But I think the margin picture yep. is really more about it being fundamentally less promotional. Uh, I think the other part mm -hmm. is some retailers certainly in department stores are 
good examples. You know, they were really tight on expenses. They cut a lot of costs. And so I think they're leveraging some of these sales increases to the bottom line. A couple other quick comments. There's definitely been this narrative, and I think we talked about this a week or two ago, that maybe department stores are back because they're posting some pretty good numbers. And actually, if you look at what Macy's reported, uh, what Kohl's reported, they are up on a two-year, the so-called two-year stack, you know, comparing to the pre-COVID numbers. They have improved upon those numbers, both in terms of sales and profitability. I'm still pretty skeptical that this really suggests a renaissance. I think there's a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, and you called last episode a, a, a dead cat, dead dead cat, cat bounce, bounce yeah. as, the, I, as the Wall Streeters would like to call it. Yeah, right? I, I just don't see it because I don't think anything has fundamentally changed in the general appeal of moderate department stores overall. And, um, yeah. and nothing major has really changed at, at Kohl's or or Macy's. You know, Macy's talked about the Toys R Us thing and how their toy business doubled while their toy business is tiny. There's so nothing. Why? Yeah, there's nothing. Um, yeah. Kohl's a little bit more interesting because of their partnership with Sephora. That seems to be driving yeah. some incremental traffic. So that's that's good. So I, overall, I thought the Kohl's uh, numbers were were a little bit more interesting than Macy's. Um, last two things I'll mention really quickly. Uh, TJX, uh, TJ Maxx companies had a really good quarter. They have signaled, though, that there are some issues on the supply chain because some of the, as you might expect, some of the manufacturers are prioritizing their full price channels. So great quarter, maybe some uh, some headwinds on the horizon. Sorry, one other thing I was going to mention, I forgot to mention uh, earlier, Walmart Target's numbers, really, really pretty strong. The interesting they th- thing they said from the strategy standpoint is they really sounded like they're in pretty good inventory shape because they really moved stuff up uh, and have yep. gotten a lot of stuff into their supply chain and their stores in anticipation of the holiday. And both of them pretty much said they are not going to take price increases because of inflation, that they are going to preserve mm. market share. And that actually had some ripple effects mm. in the in the stock market. But I think, you know, it's, it's to me, it's a smart thing to do when you're a strong retailer mm. like that. You're known for strong value. Yeah. You can afford yep. to, to take it on the chin for a quarter or two. So um, I yep. don't I don't think we'll see inflation and, you know, what the ripple effects of that will be competitively will be interesting to see. All right. So the third thing, and you and I both commented on this, you beat me to the punch on email, but uh, Casper gets taken private uh, by, I think, a private equity shop. And it actually, it's funny because, uh, not funny, haha, funny, peculiar, because you and I were already planning this episode uh, in advance of that. So um, I think we actually moved, switched timing just because this is exactly what we were talking about. So what, what were your observations about the news coming out of Casper? Well, we will get into this kind of profitless prosperity narrative around some of these disruptive brands in a second uh, as part of the episode. But yeah, Casper, you know, it's funny. Casper has been one of the the darlings of the digitally native vertical brands, as as they're called, and raised a bunch of money, growing very, very yep. quickly, went public, I think, about two years ago, and at one point was valued, you know, was one of these unicorns valued well over a billion dollars uh, there. Yeah. And I used to work in the mattress business. So I have some sense of the economics there. And every time I looked at their numbers, I was like, you know, cool story, but economics looked real, really shaky, you know, tremendous amount of money on marketing, um, very yeah. low gross margins and very liberal um, returns, very liberal returns and, you know, a ton of competition as well. 
I talk about their dreamery concept, their, their physical store concept in my book. I think that's really cool. Uh, whether, yep. whether, yep. uh, I always, you know, wondered what the numbers looked like on that. And it turns out they look pretty terrible. So the stock price is really, really collapsed. Uh, they were down to, yep. I think about $600 million in market value. And now they're going private at an even lower number. So this is a big run up and a big rundown. So what we'll talk about a little bit in the episode is, you know, is Casper just kind of this, this isolated example or uh, mm. say something more about what's going on in, in the market. Hopefully it gives them, I mean, they definitely need an infusion of capital to keep going. They've been burning through cash and uh, presumably this will be an opportunity to get them off the, the public market stage and do some sort mm. of restructuring behind the scenes at maybe a number that works better for the new investors. Well, that's a great segue. That's our news, uh, our news segment of the week, but it's a fantastic segue into our full episode, which actually, again, we were already had this one on the, on the dock to do, uh, but the Casper news just kind of gave it topspin, so to speak, because it really f- helps us focus. But it's really about you know, disruptor brands, the new direct-to-consumer, these digitally native vertical, vertical brands, the DNVBs. You know, let's let's take it from the top. What in your mind? This disruption word came out. You're a yeah. disruptor. It used to be unicorn. Used to be whatever. What right. what in your mind makes makes a disruptor? And and who are these disruptors? Who are these disruptors that you speak of? Tell me <laughs> a little bit more how, how you're thinking about this. Well, some people may be familiar with with kind of this idea of you know the legacy brand and then the insurgent brand. You know, some brand that that takes on. The, I guess it's the David and Goliath, I guess would be the other cliche, um, by finding yeah. uh, some sort of vulnerability in the big guy's model. So they reinvent, you know, maybe they go after a particular weakness, some point of friction or, yeah. or a little more um, nimble, you know? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of different ways that can play out. The way it's played out in retail, uh, I think number one has been uh, leveraging, obviously, the power of the internet. Uh, to go direct to consumer. So in some cases, you've got the DNVBs, the digitally native vertical brands, which you know, started as online only. And we'll talk about the evolution about on that in a second. Uh, but, you know, tended yeah. to go after a particular product. So Quip in toothbrushes, Warby Parker in eyeglasses, Untuck It in menswear and so forth. So they, they take a particular category. They go after some sort of product innovation, uh, but the original premise was by going direct to the consumer, they can cut out a lot of the asset-intensive right. aspects of retail, physical stores, all this inventory, and have that direct relationship with the consumer, not be reliant on a middleman. There's other direct-to-consumer and, and, and models. They t- and, they tend to be very, and they tend to be very vertical, right? I mean, if you think of Untucket, for example, yes. they basically have one value proposition. We sell shirts that look good untucked. I have a few. Uh, right. You know, very you know, living up to their name. We sell this. We don't go yes. this way, right? Yeah. Ca- category or product focus and, and you know, in the technicality of the DNVBs, they're vertically integrated. In other words, they're their own brand and they design and control the manufacturing. Uh, now, you have other players that you could say were are, are disruptors in the retail space. Amazon, obviously. Right. But Amazon, you know, is not a digitally native vertical brand. They don't own and manufacture. They're a multi-brand retailer, as is Wayfair. There are others, right? Yeah. So, uh, and then, you know, there are other kind of disruptive consumer brands, I guess, from Uber, uh, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more, I guess, in the center of retail would be, for example, the resale players, uh, Poshmark, 
thread up those those guys yeah. uh, that are in the sharing economy. You know, bringing supply and demand together, uh, rent the runway. So there's a there's a slew of them, and these brands have attracted a tremendous amount of venture capital, and so they are disrupting the kind of normal or traditional structure of the retail industry by going to market in a different way and perhaps poking at a vulnerability yeah. or two of the of the legacy players. They, they also, and, and this came out, I, I remember I was sitting with uh, a bunch of uh, traditional mattress retailers, and they were a little frustrated by, by they kind of had a sense for how big the business was, and they were frustrated that mattress, in this case, but other brands, were sucking up all the oxygen of attention, if not sales. Right. Like, how much, you know, they were like, you know, they're a bit of the mosquito in the tent, for sure. It's not fun when you're camping and have that mosquito in the tent. Um, but they're like, you know, it's really, we can't get a word in edgewise because all everybody wants to talk about is, you know, these brands. So that, that, that was, I felt that was problematic for a whole yeah. bunch of reasons from an attention perspective and a media perspective. I think there are a bunch of things there. I have a client that refers to some of these brands as mosquito brands. You know, they're small and annoying and you want to swat them away. Yeah, yeah. But I do think, yeah, they, well, there's a lot of things going on, you know, from a media perspective, they're, they're fun to write about usually, right? Because they've got something yeah. new and cool, maybe have a really uh, charismatic founder or whatever. The venture capitalists are trying to hype it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of energy behind, behind promoting the story uh, and trying to get that next round of financing and get that consumer attention. But I think the thing that is, that is disruptive to the, to the whole cycle um, has been that many of these brands, of course, not only, and Casper's a good example, or Warby Parker, you know, they have a strong value equation. You know, we are 10, 15, 20% less expensive than the competition. And they're also putting a tremendous amount of marketing uh, out into the industry to try to create their brands, but but drive that business very aggressive with discounting. So the combination of the lower prices and all this marketing puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the existing players. And I've, I've talked to clients I've worked with uh, and others about, well, you know, what do we do when we have this company coming in that is sucking up a lot of the attention that's, that's putting a lot of marketing out there that's pricing at uneconomic prices and starting to steal share from us. Do we try to swat them away like that mosquito or do we say, you know, they, these guys aren't for real and we'll, and we'll stick it out. But you know, if you're, if you're in the home furnishings business and you watch Wayfair go from nothing to whatever they are now, 10, 15, $20 billion, um, you know, they're, they're a big player. Some of these other players as we'll probably talk about a little bit, you know, they, Mm. they're definitely punching above their weight. Uh, They're not necessarily huge businesses at least yet. Yeah, it's it's interesting because on the ground, some of these businesses, because they all inevitably, interestingly, turn their minds to physical retail. You know, we'll get to that a little later. But they pay top dollar in the malls. They come in, mm-hmm. uh, they take, they take, take, they have the top dollars behind them for marketing. Yeah. They see it as a marketing tactic as much as anything. They go in the in the premium places, and and you know, as as you've been saying, as we see these. IPOs come out as we get more information. We start to get both the size of the business and the profit lists. And this is why this episode is profitless prosperity because they're growing, but they're you know they're coming back down to earth a little bit for some of them because the you know basic unit economics yeah. still matters, right? 
Well, we'll see. You know, there has been a lot of speculation, and I'm guilty of a lot of it, that many of these brands that were private were were spending uh, you know, crazy amounts of money on marketing and building out all their infrastructure, in many cases might not be pricing at a sustainable rate to to grow rock uh, you know grow market share and so they're like mm-hmm. this rocket ship in terms of sales but what else is going on yeah. in in the market so as we start to see and we've got i think you know 12 or 15 something like that of these pretty significant uh dnvbs that are now public well now we're getting to see what what the picture looks like yeah. and at least in terms of current profitability uh most of them are continuing to lose a lot of money of course the question is because, uh, you know, Amazon lost money. Lots of companies have lost. Tesla loses money. There's plenty of companies that that look right. to be enduring brands that have lost money for an extended period of time. So it's hard to really tease out how much of this is kind of the normal growth curve uh, that will allow them to be these powerful brands versus basically, you know, kind of the emperor has no clothes, that there's just a lot of hype yeah. around these. So I think it's it's hard to tease out. You know, we had Dan McCarthy um, back mm-hmm. with us a, mm-hmm. a few episodes ago to look at some of the unit economics. And I think some of that kind of analysis is very helpful to try to figure out what, her, what the long-term yeah. uh, prospects look like. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty scary really to see uh, particularly some of these brands that, you know, Wayfair is 17, 18 years old. Um, you know, so it's not like it's a new, new company. Some of these brands are yep. more than 10 years old. Um, so you would expect they would be maybe more on a glide path. Um, COVID's on the one hand, you know, changed a lot. You would generally think for e-commerce driven brands that that would be a good thing for their business. But if you look at Warby Parker's numbers um, and some of these other companies, it helps it, it helps, so it helps the Pelotons of the world. Yeah. And you know what I sometimes think about, so we should talk about Casper getting, you know, going private is, is, um, you know, eventually, and a lot of these investors want their their liquidation moment. You know, they want something to happen to these brands. Uh, in Canada, there was a mattress brand that was a competitor, Canadian competitor to Casper. It got bought by uh, Sleep Country, which is the biggest mattress uh, retailer in the country. So that's not a bad outcome in some ways for some of these brands to be kind of bought and folded in. Um, you know, everybody gets their money's worth at some rate. The question in my mind and I don't know if either of us know the answer to this. Is Casper the thin edge of the wedge? You know, the camel's nose in the tent, or is it an outlier? It got taken private for a way less valuation right. than it was prior. So is that a sign of things to come, or is that kind of an outlier? And, you know, other businesses have more, are more solid and have a, a better future. Directing consumer brands are not new. Williams, Sonoma, Sir Latab. I mean, there's a whole host mm-hmm. of these mail-order catalog yeah. businesses, basically, LL Bean, Land's End. I mean, these were direct-to-consumer, vertically integrated, not digitally native, analog native, I guess, new acronym, that have been around forever. And guess what? They started direct-to-consumer online, but online back then was the catalog. And then, here's the crazy thing, they opened stores. When they opened stores, they discovered that their mail-order catalog business got better when they opened stores. And then when they things moved on, online more, they discovered that stores help their online business. So all of this was very known 20 plus years ago. Uh, so it's really not, I mean, obviously a lot has changed, but the whole hmm. concept of direct to consumer and the vertically integrated brand um, is, is pretty common. Certainly many of these brands are going about it 
in a different way because they can pick their real estate today. They are fundamentally mm. built on one platform. And so the, the omni-channel harmonized piece of it is easier for them. They don't necessarily have to break down the silos and fix fix things that, that have existed in the incumbent brands. But a lot of the model is very true. So to answer your question, I, I do think, you know, there's been a lot of reports that that Casper has been a little bit of a mess in terms of, of operating. So some of this can be chalked up to execution. But I think the broader lesson and when we look at some of these businesses is to ask the question, well, number one, how big is the addressable market really? Because many of these brands found that it was fairly easy to find like that perfect customer, but then, you know, and and those customers were basically finding them because they had a perfect value proposition for a certain amount of customers. These customers are using organic ways to find them. So that first 10, 20, $30 million of revenue came pretty quickly. But then you get to the point where you have to go find customers. And when you're really trying to find customers, number one, it gets really expensive. Number two, you're typically trying to steal that customer away from somebody else. So like Bonobos, sure. in their in their second or third stage of growth, they're basically trying to get the Nordstrom customer, right? And Nordstrom is right. knows who their customer is, and they're going to try to hold on to them. So it starts to become really expensive to, to grab that next level of customers, and or mm-hmm. you then decide, as many have, to go the wholesale route to try to expand, yeah. uh, which is, you know, not exactly direct to consumer, but that's a technicality. Or, yeah. as we've seen, a lot of them are opening stores. And I think the hard thing to tell right now, except maybe you could argue for Warby Parker, is most of these brands are fairly early in their store opening cycle. And most of them yeah. open, you know, you mentioned this earlier. A lot of them open, they pay premium rents, they're in, you know, the kind of locations that are kind of a layup. Like if you have any kind of business, you open up next to the Apple store in Soho or you go into one, you know, it's not hard to figure out where those first 20, 30, 40 locations are. Like they're all go down to Austin. Like you can find, there's the Yeti store, there's right. the outdoor the voices store. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's, you know, that, that part is not too complicated, but plenty of brands that are really niche brands they never get beyond 40 or 50 stores. Like nobody talks about Kiehl's, if you know that brand, you know, being 800 mm. stores, right? I mean, people understand mm. that it's got its niche, a very good niche. So I think it's it's very hard to understand. I mean, all we know is that many of them have opened these stores and overall they're still losing money. But it's pretty hard mm. to tie together how much of that is related to their store expansion how much of that is related to just fundamentally uh, pricing issues or overspending on marketing or the business, or the business yeah. model itself. I, you know, what, what I thought is interesting and to be fair, you know, we often kid about the whole Mark and Dries and the you know, who needs stores stores are gone. You know, one thing I think that has evolved over the past 10 years that I reflect on often is 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I, as a, as one of these brands could really take advantage of the platforms, whether it was Facebook or Google. And if you develop some expertise, you had direct marketers, you had direct response marketers, you really, in those early days, you could really have leverage and use those to drive your business quite successfully with a, you know, a ROAS is a very common measure, yeah. you know, return on ads. And yes. now, you know, it's hard to, to find advantage for anybody of any size and so it feels like in a world 10 years ago, I don't need a store, but now I need stores because I can't gain advantage on Facebook 
So I'm going to try and gain advantage by opening a store in a high mile street or in a yeah. in a very prominent shopping mall. The 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 luggage company Away just opened up in Yorkdale here in Toronto. It's a beautiful store. It's really well done. I just I just think that they let, like listen. We, we yeah we'll do all the social media stuff that you'd expect us to, but it's hard to gain attention or leverage in the way we did even ten years ago. Do you do you do you ever think about that as as one of those kind of things that's changed in the overall macro environment that is pushing towards physicality? Well, I think I think for certain types of brands, the physical store was inevitable. I think what what Mark Andreessen mm-hmm. got got wrong and the first the first, you know, the investment premise behind a lot of these retailers was there was an underappreciation for the value that stores add. So in the case of mm-hmm. some of these brands, you know, they got to a certain point but then they did, and I happen to have access to a couple, or I've seen, uh, I can't say who it is, but I've seen information from a couple of these brands. And pretty much they said, well, here are these interested consumers, but they want to go try it on, or they want to go understand why does this sweater $150 or, or whatever. So, you know, there was a point where in order to penetrate that, you know, they get to make the size, the total addressable market bigger, yeah. they had to have physical stores. That was the thing that was missing. And I think if you really understood the difference between online shopping, which is basically running errands versus something that's seeking a solution, you just knew that what Mark Andreessen said had to be nonsense. So I think there was just an underappreciation or like this technology blindness to the value that physical stores could add. But the thing that you bring up, I think is very important as well because it was much easier 10 years ago to, to um, build a brand online. Uh, It just wasn't that costly. I remember I had a client about five, six years ago where I said to them, well, the good news is you're doing pretty well. The bad news is Facebook is going to figure this out. (laughs) And and so I don't know, I don't know enough about it to say, Oh, you got six months, you have two years, but there's just no way that that Facebook right. and you know Instagram and Twitter didn't didn't have much of an advertising model yeah. back then, so yeah. it was inevitable. Yeah, there's no way that there's no way. I saw the same thing again. I didn't know enough to predict when, but it was it was when not if that they were going to say, "Hey, all you guys riding for free off the bus." Yeah, uh, I, I call it. I, I don't know. Maybe if I stole this. Out. Yeah, I don't know if I stole this from somebody else, um, but I call them like the marketing toll booth operators. Right? It's like when you when eventually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Eventually, you figured out like, well, where I want to go is on this road, and you own the toll booth. Well, it's like, well, how badly do you want to go? And right, and it, and basically, you auction it off. And so, I think the phenomenon. Yeah. This is a little bit maybe inside baseball, and it's a little bit of Dan McCarthy's work. I think gets at this, but just to sort of picture it is, you know, if you can find that first batch of customers pretty easily, or they essentially find you, you've got really low cost of acquisition. The customers that love you the best tend to spend more. And they're probably not as price sensitive. So that's a beautiful customer lifetime value segment, right? Or cohort. Then as you start to try to build the base more, you start to have to pay to find them and target them. And now you're competing with whoever is also competing with them. So your marketing mm-hmm. costs start to go up. When you think yeah. about those additional cohorts you start to add, they're not the most perfect fit for your business model. So their total lifetime spending is likely to be lower. And they probably are more price sensitive. So the worst case scenario you have is your cost acquisition keeps going up and the marginal value of the customers you're bringing in is going down. And essentially what I think has happened to Casper 
has happened at Wayfair, has happened at some of these other companies, is they're now realizing that, yes, the more we're spending more to bring them in, but the incremental value of the customers we're bringing in right. is not economic. So that has to be reset. The store investment conceivably does a few things. One, it, it increases the, the total addressable market. It may bring right. down your acquisition cost. You're paying, you know, rent is sort of the new customer acquisition cost. And it's become a cliche, but that's, that's, yep. that's yep. true. And in some categories, probably not away, but certainly in a lot of apparel categories, as we know, the return rates are really high online. So another big driver of opening stores is to try to get the return rates down. I've talked and written about kind of how this had to evolve. So I don't think any of this is tremendously unexpected. In fact, I the other day I posted on LinkedIn, you may have seen it, that I think COVID kind of pushed this reckoning down the road by about 18 months because so much shifted online and the cost of acquisition mm. came down. But now as it's starting to go back, cost of, of digital marketing is sky high again. Uh, it's, a, it's a different environment going, going forward. Yeah. So I think it's going to take us a little while to really sort out. You know, I don't think Casper is necessarily the canary in the coal mine, but I think it, it speaks to some, some issues. And the more quarters we get from, from some of these brands that haven't been public too long, the more that mm. uh, file for IPOs, we'll, we'll just get a closer look and it'll become a lot more clear what to look for. But we're, we're in this kind of little bubble where the recent results mm. are decent because of the moved e-commerce. And I think there's a lot of investors that just kind of have faith that will all work itself out. The last thing I was going to say, though, I would encourage people if they care about this to take a look at some of the established brands and what their numbers look like. Because I've been saying, I just can't get my head around these five, six, $7 billion valuations for some of these brands, given the size of the business and the trajectory of their losses. You can go out and look at a great former client, direct-to-consumer brand called Duluth Trading Company. Duluth Trading mm -hmm. Company has been around for a while. They have, I think, 65 or 70 stores, vertically integrated brand. And, you know, they, I think their operating EBITDA margins are something like 12, 13%. So here's a business that's, you know, six, $700 million, which is way bigger than Allbirds. Yeah. You know, considerably bigger than Warby Parker and has 60, 70 stores like Untucket, Bonobos and others do, or, and some of them are moving to that number. And, you know, they're, they're cranking out pretty good money. Now, I don't think anybody thinks they're a hyper growth story at this point. So, right. you know, they're not apples to apples, but I think you can look at, at American Eagle. You can look at some other companies that are essentially vertically integrated direct to consumer brands and have a frame of reference and ask yourself, well, if, if the loot trading company is valued much less than all birds, you know, mm. is, is, the loot trading company How undervalued yeah. or is, is there ah, just a miss? Because ah. there's something about, you it's know, alignment in the universe, right? Kind of right. Saying, I mean, yeah. it just, obviously all birds and these other companies rent the runway, whatever, pick your favorite one. They're all, you know, early in the maturity curve, but you know, you have to be able to work your way to being a fairly sizable business with decent EBITDA margins, you know, in the not too distant future or the, you know, the discounted cash flow, not to get into financial theory here, but like it, it doesn't, some, something's one of those numbers has got to be wrong. Uh, so, but, but it, but it's, you know, it's, as, well as as, it's well, but it's typical with, you know, these, and you've said it many times, these, these stocks are valued on the story, 
And, you know, the way the stock market works, uh, you know, the venture capitalists want to IPO it. And, you know, there's some people that just will buy any super mm-hmm. sexy stock. And so it's yeah. the greater fool theory, I guess, is is what you call it. <laughs> or they're hoping, you know, yeah. Unilever bought, uh, they buy Dollar Shave Club at what now looks like to be a crazy price. Walmart bought jet at a really crazy price and bonobos and some others. So, um, you know, you just, you don't want to be the one left holding the bag. (laughs) I guess where you don't, or when the music stops or whatever. It it is a game of musical chairs. And it's funny, I got to put my hand up. I bought Rivian stock last week. Uh, You know, there's a stock that came out IPO more valuable than Ford. They haven't made a truck yet, basically, (laughs) in in the market. So, but I bought the stock and you know what it's actually doing. Okay. It's a beautiful truck, by the way. Uh, Talk about a great story. And, and, you know, I wanted to end this episode on a positive note, because I think out of all this, out of these brands, some may get taken out some may not survive uh ones like warby parker may consolidate they may have the strength to bring in several like there's a lot of paths to success for many of these brands and and what i love about it listen i love talking about them i think they're doing interesting things sometimes the business model looks a bit shaky sometimes i just don't i i don't get it and sometimes i'm you know i'm wrong and and somebody sees a lot of great things in them and sometimes they don't succeed but it is you know, I, we wish I wish them all the best. I I'm, I find it fascinating, um, one way, shape, or another. And and uh, I think I think there's hope for some of these brands in one way, shape, or another. So I like to remain optimistic about some of these oh, yeah. uh, brands. A- a- and, and absolutely, yeah. Some some will, will absolutely turn out to be to be great brands. I mean, the only thing that really I find a little bit sad is when the venture capitalists or the you know the investor world supports these brands to kind of a crazy degree and it puts yeah. unfair pressure on retailers big and small to compete because yep. basically the venture capitalists are subsidizing this crazy amount right. of marketing and in many cases these these you know unsustainable pricing yeah. prices Un- so it unlevels the playing it unlevels right. the playing field basically because these as these brands pay outsized amounts for the technology they're buying, for the people that they're yes. hiring, for the stores that they're leasing, for the on and on and on. So I think it is there is a distortion element right. to it that is that is net negative. I think to yeah. the industry in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. But the flip, but I do think the flip side of that is that these disruptor brands, you know, they are they make hopefully some of the legacy brands stronger because they they show new and different ways to do business, you know, whether that's more asset light model, you know, more showroom model or whatever. Um, Most of them to me are great depictions of, of what I call harmonized retail, right? They didn't, they build it as one brand in many channels, not omni-channel multi-channel that you have to integrate and deal with all these silos. Um, They very much, most of them are very uh, customer data driven. So I, I think there's a ton to be learned for, from, retailers big and small, but say more traditional type of retailers by, by looking at what these companies do to be customer centric, to really zoom in on that customer journey, to think about go to market strategies in a really, in a really different way. And, yeah. you know, that brings great value to the consumer for sure. And in many cases, I think that just sharpens the saw for, for other retailers. So I, I'm all in favor of more, more innovation. Uh, but I do think at some point, you know, you're not really prosperous uh, if you don't make any money. Great way to wrap. Listen, this has been a great discussion. Uh, and I think we'll come back to this as things evolve over the years, but uh, really nailed it, I think, in terms of this, trying to understand 
their role in this big retail ecosystem that you and I love. Uh, so why don't we leave this episode uh, there? We've got a couple more episodes left in the season. A reminder to all of our viewers to be sure and check out our YouTube site. We generally post the content from uh, this episode that you're listening to the next day uh, or the day after. And uh, sometimes there's some bonus Easter eggs and then you just get to see me and you kind of uh, in live and, and uh, maybe watch that over your cornflakes in the morning. So yeah, there you go. And my lack of uh, my lack. Speaking of uh, Dollar Shave Club, I canceled my subscription. I think everybody can uh. tell a little bit. Um, <laughs> but there you go. Make sure right, very listen, rugged. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, all right. Well, let's leave it there, and that's a wrap on this episode. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast platforms. So you can catch up with all our great interviews. Subscribe so that just automatically shows up. Uh, tell your friends and and also uh, in new insights and new episodes will show up every week so tell your friends um, because that will help us uh, share the word the good the, the, the good wisdom now be sure and check out <laughs> and be sure and check us out on uh, our new YouTube channel not so new anymore we've got a couple episodes up there uh, and just look for Remarkable Retail and I'm Steve Dennis you can check out more of my work at my website stevenpdennis.com or on Forbes or on Twitter. And please check out my second edition of my book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, available just about everywhere books are sold. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice Retail Podcast and a bunch of other stuff. You can find me on LinkedIn, learn about me on meleblanc.co. All right, Steve, great episode. Look forward to chatting again next week. Be safe and uh, have a great rest of your day. 